We now turn in God's Word with that same desire we have just sung, that we might learn God's precepts, that we might learn to follow those precepts, that we might learn to live by those precepts. As we turn in God's Word, we turn and study tonight someone who, at least uh, for the vast majority of his life, did not learn to do so. And that is King Nebuchadnezzar. For those of you who are joining us this evening, in the morning we're on a series expository through the Gospel of Mark. In the evenings uh, we are going through uh, those individuals in Scripture uh, whose names begin with the letter N. We started at A a number of years ago. We're now up to the letter N. Uh, we've been dealing with Noah for the past several weeks. Tonight we uh, open up God's Word as it reveals to us the man named Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, we begin then at Daniel chapter 2. But I invite you to read your scriptures, leave your scripture open as we'll be referring to a number of passages and reading from a number of other sections as well. Daniel chapter 2. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream in its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dreams, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretations. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry, very furious, and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, the wise men were about to be killed. They sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, 
who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? And Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's bow in prayer. Dear Lord, we take this time to hear your word. We pray that you will be with Pastor Bob as he explains it to us. We take this story that we have heard so many times and in different ways and that you will enlighten us, that we may know better your word and that we may live from it. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. So if you have the sermon outline with you, there are three points to our message tonight. First of all, his reign, that is Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Secondly, his dreams. And then thirdly, I believe it's on the backside, his purpose. Why is he found on the pages of Scripture? What is God seeking to teach us through using Nebuchadnezzar in his word? First of all, his reign. And much of this I'll be very brief about and very quick. Um, it's kind of the, just the facts. If you remember the old Dragnet show, uh, that's the thing that uh, the one officer, Jack Webb, used to say, just the facts, ma'am. He didn't want all the stuff that went behind it. He just wanted the basic information. So here goes. Nebuchadnezzar reigns from 605 B.C. to 562 B.C. Yes, it's B.C., not B.C.E., which some of you are now used to using. Uh, we still refer to time before Christ and Anno Domini in the year of our Lord, not by the common era which is so prevalent in our world today. So from 605 to 562, if you remember in the B.C. dating, things go backwards okay, because we're counting down to zero uh, B.C. and the birth of Christ. So he's reigning for approximately 43 years. He reigns over the Babylonian Empire, centralized in what is today Iraq. Perhaps uh, some of you uh, have had uh, family, friends, or relatives, or fr uh, those known to you in your community who have served in the Iraqi war. You've seen the map on news many times. You know the basic layout. But the Babylonian Empire covers most of the Middle East, not just that which we uh, look at on our maps and call it a country of Iraq, but it's spread out from there. He is the ruler of that entire empire. He is mentioned, interestingly enough, 90 times by name in Scripture. Now, I should give you kind of the parallel, David is mentioned about a thousand times, Moses a little over 800, Jacob about 350, Isaac is mentioned about 130 times, yet when we mention those, we're dealing with those who, who we would say play a significant role in the history of redemption. Yet this king, this foreign king, who we're going to learn is not a really good guy, is mentioned some 90 times. And when, when I reflect upon that, I, it, it strikes me that God, just by the mere repetition of his name so often, is also seeking to tell us something. There is a reminder there. 
that we as God's people need to be constantly reminded about Nebuchadnezzar. Fourth, Nebuchadnezzar was brutal and powerful. His brutality is on display here in Daniel chapter 2, but this is kind of small in comparison to the type of brutality. But yet we see it on display here in Daniel chapter 2. If they can't tell him his dream, he's going to just kill them all. There's no mercy, there's no kindness, it's just death. And that is often the way, as you read the history of Nebuchadnezzar, that he dealt with things. If he didn't like you, it was death. And the more horrific form of death, the better. And he's an extremely powerful individual. Nobody is questioning. Nobody's going, uh, King, I don't think this is a good, you know, if you get rid of all the wise people, we're just going to be ruled by a bunch of dummies. Do you understand that? We, where's your information going to come from? Nobody dares confront him. Nobody dares challenge him. Nobody dares step up to the plate. All except that is the Lord God through his servant Daniel. But the one thing we also have to note about Nebuchadnezzar is he is an ambitious builder. He is the builder of the city of Babylon. We are given some statistics about that, and some of this obviously comes out of archaeology, and so we, you know, it's it sort of, eh, was it really so? But we do know that the city of Babylon was laid out in a perfect square. That being 14 miles by 14 miles. Now, I, I'm just going to brush ahead a minute. When you get to the book of Revelation, we, we come to the end chapters, and there is this comparison that goes on between Babylon and Jerusalem. And you know there is the whole thing about Jerusalem being a city four square as well. Well, there is a reason for that language in comparison to Babylon. They're, they're not just, the, the spirit isn't just pulling something up. Let me, let me make this comparison. It's because it's showing the superiority okay, of the heavenly Jerusalem to the earthly Babylon. Yet, earthly Babylon was pretty impressive. A 14-mile square city is pretty large. The walls of the city of Babylon were said to be 200 feet tall and 75 feet wide. There is basically a super highway going on top of the walls. For we learn that they did indeed run chariots past one another. It was a roadway. Perhaps one of the Greatest things about that ancient city of Babylon, as far as Nebuchadnezzar is concerned, is that this is known as the Hanging Gardens, the beautiful gardens, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. It came, the city did, with a complete water and sewer system. The name Babylon means Gate of the Gods. It's taken from the Old Testament account, the story of Babel, where they're going to build the tower to the Lord. Babylon is built basically in the same area where the Tower of Babel was. That too was supposedly a gateway to the gods. 
That's why they name it Babylon. The god in particular that is worshipped here is the god Marduk, um, that uh, obviously a pagan deity. F. He also destroys Jerusalem. He is going to be the means by which God speaks to his covenant people. The Lord has warned his people of that destruction. It is Nebuchadnezzar who is going to carry it out. If you simply make reference uh, in your notes to Jeremiah chapter 52 and to 2 Kings chapter 25, you can read that later, that uh, in both of those passages it is acknowledged very clearly that Nebuchadnezzar is going to be used by the Lord for that purpose. But the other thing is, he also carries away captives. So if you take your scriptures again and go back to Daniel chapter 1, in that first chapter, right away at the beginning, we read of how Daniel and others are taken. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel both of the royal family and of nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. And that's, of course, as you read on where we meet Daniel and his three friends. So there is a first time that Nebuchadnezzar comes when Jehoiakim is king, takes away the leading people, then Nebuchadnezzar comes back again during the reign of Zedekiah, destroys Jerusalem, and burns the temple as well. That is his reign in a nutshell. But that which Daniel centers on, as far as Nebuchadnezzar is concerned, that which the Spirit leads Daniel to give to us, is this whole dream stuff. It's going to happen twice. In this first dream... This is the way, it, it, I hope you caught what happened here. Nebuchadnezzar is not dumb. Okay? Let, let us never think that simply because somebody is a pagan and is not a worshiper of God, that somehow or another they don't have any sensibility. Nebuchadnezzar understands that if he tells these magicians, these enchanters, and the Chaldeans, his dream, they can make anything up as far as its interpretation. They can say, oh, oh, you, you told us that? Well, we think that means this, or that means that. What Nebuchadnezzar places before them is this. You first tell me the dream, and then you give me its interpretation. I want to know you know what I dream. Well, tell us. No, I'm not telling you that. Oh, come on. you got to tell us who can do that. And Nebuchadnezzar's response is basically this. I know you guys are just biding your time. You're just waiting until I'm out of power and the next guy is here. Okay, You're just telling me what I want to hear. 
You're just kissing up to me. That's all you're doing. Okay? I'm tired of it. I'm sick of it. Tell me my dream. Well, that can't be done. Okay? Then you die. It's as simple as that. So the execution sentence has gone out. Daniel obviously was not amongst that group, but he is considered one of the wise people of the day, of the empire. The sentence comes to him and to his friends that they too are going to die. Daniel asked for an audience. Okay, now let's pick it up again. Daniel chapter 2. Verse 31. Here's the dream. This is what the Lord reveals to Daniel. Remember, even the enchanter said, nobody, no person can do this. This has to come basically from the gods. Well, to a certain extent, they were true. Okay? But it's not the gods. It is God. The Lord God. The one true God gives to Daniel the dream. Daniel now standing before Nebuchadnezzar tells him what his dream was. Verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly in iron and partly in clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken into pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so as not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. So dream number one, big image, head of gold, and so forth, rock cut out of a mountain, comes and destroys, crushes, makes into dust the whole image. Now Daniel interprets it. Pick it up with me at verse 37. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hands he has given whatever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break into pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever just as you saw a stone cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke into pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Notice, 
Nebuchadnezzar's response. Okay, so we have the dream. You have the interpretation. God, as we understand it, in Jesus Christ will establish a kingdom, the stone, that will indeed rule and destroy all other kingdoms. How does Nebuchadnezzar respond to that? Verse 46, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and paid homage to Daniel. Notice where he directed this, to Daniel. And commanded that an offering and incense be offered to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and made great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief perfect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request to the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. So his first response is this. Wow, Daniel, you're quite something. I need to promote you. Notice what his second response is. It's Daniel chapter 3. It's the story we know very well, but I think oftentimes we don't associate it with what just happened. What did he just have? He had a dream of an image. What does he now build? He builds an image. 90 feet high, 9 feet wide, of what? What was it made of? Solid gold. Do you understand the defiance of Nebuchadnezzar here? God's just told him that there's going to be these kingdoms. Nebuchadnezzar is basically saying, no, it'll never happen. There will never be another kingdom after mine. My kingdom will be the kingdom that will be forever and ever and ever. Look, it's of gold. No silver, no iron, no clay. This is Nebuchadnezzar in defiance. Yeah, I've heard you. Yeah, you got my dream right. Yeah, I got the interpretation. I just don't believe it. I am unwilling to accept that as truth. So he moves ahead with his plan. And of course, that leads to the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and their surviving the fiery furnace. Okay? So let's look at how Nebuchadnezzar responds to that. Okay? Turn to Daniel chapter 3, verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than to serve and worship any god except their own. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid to ruin. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all the people's nations and language that dwell on the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Sort of, sort of like one of those root 
things that every once in a while a president puts out, you know, you got to say the right things, so they make their proclamation. That's the way this reads. Yes, it's in praise to God, but the insincerity of it is pretty obvious. Yes, he acknowledges, but not his heart. So God sends a second dream. I'm not sure how often we pay much attention to this second dream. So I invite you to turn ahead with me okay, to Daniel chapter 4 as we come to verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay on my bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in. I told them the dream. Note the difference. I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last Daniel came in before me, he who is named Belteshazzar. After the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. Notice how this is being referenced. Notice he made a declaration, but that seems to be all gone, doesn't it? He's back to talking about gods and all that sort of thing. So what is his second dream? His second dream is of a great tree that gets cut down. And out of the stump arises growth. And he's troubled. Has him perplexed. What might this dream mean? What is happening? What is going on? Well, let's go to Daniel's interpretation. Verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the world, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven, and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beast of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and that your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox 
and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And on and on it goes with a warning. King, break off your sin. Break it off. Stop it. You need to turn. You need to repent. You need to humble yourself before the Lord. Verse 27. So how does Nebuchadnezzar respond? You've just been given this warning. It's a little clearer. The rock one, he could perhaps reason, it's going to be generations. It sounds like this will be a long ways. I'm going to have a nice kingdom, whatever. What? I, my reign's going to come to an end? How does he respond? He goes for a walk. Verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you'll be driven from among men. We learn that uh, he eats grass. His hair grew as long as eagle feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. Verse 33. How does he respond? I am Nebuchadnezzar the Great. God humbles him, drives him from the throne. But then something curious occurs, something I, I, I hope will someday be pursued a little bit more by scholars, because I'm kind of at my wit's end about this. This, this to me, is, is a very interesting turn. Something happens at this point in time. Look at verse 34. All of this about Nebuchadnezzar has been written by Daniel about Nebuchadnezzar. But now notice what happens. This is the word of Scripture. This is God's word, inspired word. Look at who is speaking. Look at who is talking. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes towards heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. And then from His mouth comes this ringing anthem of praise. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and my splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor 
the King of heaven. For all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Not another word about Nebuchadnezzar. That ends it. It leaves us with a very interesting point, doesn't it? First, is Nebuchadnezzar the author, through the Holy Spirit, of a portion of Scripture? Daniel could not have written these words. Daniel could not write by inspiration, I, Nebuchadnezzar. He's not Nebuchadnezzar. The only person who can write these words are Nebuchadnezzar. But this is also the final word of Nebuchadnezzar. Where does it end? Does it end in defiance? No. Does it end in pride? No. Where does it end? It ends with a confession of humility and of the righteousness of God. This, is, this to me, is one of the, 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 the most amazing passages of scripture in the sense of stopping to think who this is this was nebuchadnezzar and of all that we've said and of the warnings not heeded i've done all this in defiance of the dream that was just interpreted to him Living out there, humble, like an animal, his reason returns to him. God sends his spirit to this man, and he humbles himself and confesses the righteousness of God. I cannot make a proclamation about Nebuchadnezzar's eternal soul. But my friends, I would not be shocked if on the day I enter glory, Nebuchadnezzar is there. What more does a person need to say? What more does a person need to do? It's, in, it's, it's a startling text. Because one of who he is. Two, because of what he says. That God's work in this man's heart brought about this confession, this statement of faith. So let's step back from Nebuchadnezzar and think about for a minute what is God's purpose in giving us 90 references about Nebuchadnezzar? What is God's purpose in 
giving to us this empire that Nebuchadnezzar is in charge of and in control of? Well, I think the first part is pretty obvious, is it not? He's used to demonstrate the sovereignty of God. Who is the one who is in control? Who do we keep coming back to here in the book of Daniel? Who's the one? It's God. God is the one who gave Daniel the wisdom. God is the one who brings up a kingdom that destroys all earthly kingdoms. Who is it that comes and announces the humiliation? Who is the one who calls out the humiliation? Who's the one who drives great King Nebuchadnezzar from his throne. Who is the one who restores Nebuchadnezzar? None but God. The Lord is sovereignly in control. And I know we say that a lot. We talk about that a lot. But here is such a crystal clear picture. And sometimes we think about that sovereignty of God perhaps in small ways. And we think about that the sovereignty of God, yes, is over these things and over rainstorms and over snowstorms and over wind and, and over those sorts of things. Yeah, we know and we confess, yes, he's the sovereign as well over nations and so on, but there's a part of us sometimes that, yeah, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. Seems like every time President Trump opens his mouth, the stock market goes one way or the other. It seems like he's kind of in control of our finances. Kind of seems when Putin makes a move, that makes all the world go. And, and we kind of lose perspective. Why? Because nobody, we read, our newspapers, our news programs, aren't telling us the sovereignty of God over all things. Instead, it's worry, 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 worry. Rather than to know that all things are in the hands of a sovereign God. We may not know answers. We may not know tomorrow. We may not know the answers to some of our own life struggles. But God is sovereign still. He rules over the affairs of man. Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. I'll start at 20. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom wisdom and might, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. The sovereignty of God over all things. It doesn't take away our human responsibilities of the decisions. It's not like we go, well, God's sovereign, it'll happen, it'll happen. It does not take away our responsibility for our sins that we commit. 
but it does remove our constant worry and anxiety about life. God is sovereign. God is the one who directs. God is the one orchestrating history. By the time we get to the book of Revelation, we read that the Lamb roars, that the Lamb with his wound roars, that he conquers. God is sovereign. Live life every day, understanding the sovereignty of God. Secondly, Nebuchadnezzar is used to demonstrate the judgment of God. God uses Nebuchadnezzar, an evil, wicked king, to punish his own people, to discipline Judah, to discipline his covenant people. God uses this, this self-absorbed king, a worshiper of a god named Marduk, who exalts himself, who is horrifically brutal. God uses him. He says, I want you to be the means by which my people are disciplined. He occurs upon the pages of Scripture perhaps so often as that reminder to us that God does discipline us. But we are reminded, as Scripture does, that God only disciplines those He loves. Why was He doing that to this people? Because He loved them. He loved them, and he wanted them to be near to him. He wanted them to be close to him, but they had chosen other gods. They had chosen to worship the gods of this world. And so God comes with his disciplinarian, Nebuchadnezzar, to draw his people back, to draw his people in. When some of the people had escaped out of the, the snare of Nebuchadnezzar and had made their way to Egypt, Jeremiah goes with him and stands up to him and says, don't think you got it comfortable here. God's going to hunt you down here too. He's going to use Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to chase you down here. And all the things that you're taking safety in here, God's going to destroy them through Nebuchadnezzar as well. Nebuchadnezzar becomes, without his knowing it, God's means of drawing his people back. Thirdly, he is also used to demonstrate God's mercy. How? Well, let's go back to the fall of Jerusalem and let's go back to its destruction. What might have been might have been 
the means by which a tyrannical ruler of ne such as Nebuchadnezzar might have dealt with this, but destroy every living soul. But God in his mercy did not allow it. God's people, a remnant, are spared. God's faithfulness to the promise that he has made that he will bring forth the lion of the tribe of Judah will be kept. God is merciful. God is merciful in the fact that we see that these evil enchanters are spared by the intervening of Daniel. It is because Daniel steps forward that we read the next time around when he has the next dream, who shows up? Same people who were there at the first one. Why didn't they get killed? Because God is a God of mercy. Through Daniel stepping forward. Daniel could have said, let them all die. But he doesn't. But even think, my friends, of the mercy that God showed to Nebuchadnezzar. From the time of the dream, the second dream, till the time that Nebuchadnezzar stands upon that wall and declares, this is mine, and the judgment of God falls upon him. How much time went by? Twelve months. What a patient and long-suffering God. It isn't Nebuchadnezzar has the dream, the next day, boom! Gives him 12 months. And even when he's out there as the wild animal, think of the mercy of God. Did Nebuchadnezzar bring about his own reason? No! That was the gift of God. Remember the dream? The stump will be cut, but what's going to happen? Shoots will come from it. Oh, the mercy of God. To even Nebuchadnezzar. That God is indeed patient. What does the scripture say? That God desires that no one be destroyed. even to Nebuchadnezzar. And where does that take us but to ourselves? Is not the mercy of God so plainly evident in our own lives? How many times have you sinned against God in your life? How many times have you sinned against God today? How many times have you sinned against God in this hour of worship? And what could be the response of a holy, just God? You could be destroyed in a moment and in an instant. But God is merciful. 
He does not treat us as our sins deserve. He is patient. He is long-suffering with you and I. He has compassion upon us. He loves us as he loves his own son. Whenever you think of Nebuchadnezzar, remember the mercy of God. As I say, I don't, I don't know the final destiny of, of Nebuchadnezzar. I, all I can go by is what is written in Scripture and the end of the story ending there as far as Nebuchadnezzar is concerned. But I pray you know the end of your story. I pray I know the end of my story. That it doesn't just end with repentance and confession of Christ. See, some of you are already there with me. You see what's missing in the story of Nebuchadnezzar at this point? What happened? How did he live out the rest of his days? Was there fruit, evidence from this? Did this change his life? Did this change his reign? Did this change the type of king he was? We don't know. It's left there. Does God's mercy change our lives? Does God's grace transform our thinking? Does God's grace transform our living? Does God's grace transform the decisions we will make tonight, tomorrow, this next week? Does God's grace transform how we interact with our wife or with our husband, with our children, with our co-workers? Does God's grace transform how we interact with our classmates and teachers. Does God's grace change life? Let's pray. Father, as the Apostle Paul stated in the book of Romans, May we be transformed by your grace. Seeking to live lives that are according to your truth, to your word. Father, we have to confess that so often we too, even sitting here in church, have heard your word. We've preached your word. We've read your word. We've studied your word. And yet, Father, we so often find ourselves going against that word. And so we, we pray again, even as the psalmist prayed, teach us, O Lord, your word of truth. Give us an understanding heart that we may have transformed lives by your grace. 
in Christ's name. God's people say, amen.